Hello, and welcome to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. I'm Vito Sperduto, Global Head of Mergers and Acquisitions. And as always, I'm joined by Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chairman of Global Investment Banking. Hi, Larry. Great to be here, Vito. And today we have a special guest. We have Josh Rosenbaum, Global Head of Industrial and Diversified Services here at RBC. Josh is uh, back in New York, fresh from our Global Industrials Conference, where we had over 100 corporates representing a broad spectrum of industrial sectors. Also, we are excited to have Josh here today because he's written the authoritative book on investment banking called Investment Banking, Valuation, LBOs, M&A, and IPOs. Well, welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks for having me. Very excited for our discussion today. It's a pretty interesting uh, time in the markets and industrials specifically. You know, Josh and Larry, if we, you know, if we think about the M&A market this year, obviously the, the first half of this year was basically equivalent to what we saw in the second half of last year when volumes have been significantly depressed. We were expecting an uptick in the second half of 23. It's starting a bit slower, I would say, than what we were anticipating. But we are seeing some green shoots and probably more than some green shoots at this point. And although volumes are off, depending on which market we look at globally, 25 to 30% versus what we saw last year, year to date, it is steadily getting better as we go through the year. So Josh, maybe we can start off in, in your sector. Give us a little bit of an overview of where you're seeing pockets of opportunity, some of the transaction highlights, and you know we'll get into a bit in terms of what we're expecting for the remainder of this year and as we go in the next year. Yeah, well, even more so, you know, now that we're in Q3 heading into Q4, there are very strong undercurrents. People want to do deals. And I think whereas the beginning of this year, there's a ton of macro uncertainty weighing over everyone in terms of uh, trying to figure out where financial performance and cash flows of buyers and sellers were going to go, in addition to high rates, now, a lot of the macro, at least the fear of the apocalypse has been removed, but we're still dealing with higher rates. And that's simple math. Higher rates means a higher cost of financing, which impacts buyers' ability to pay. Clearly, some parts of industrials are more cyclical than others, but by and large, you were dealing with companies with real profitability and real cash flows. So the art of the possible should be present in industrials as much as any other sector. But in order to bridge the gap between seller price expectations um, and buyer's ability to pay, clearly interest rates are a key component. And the, the health of the financing markets has definitely improved, but we're still talking about hundreds of basis points, depending on the credit rating and the issuer, higher than where we were before. So I think once people are adapting to new interest rates, and I think that bodes well for getting deals done, but once you get into the realm of private equity, which is so dependent on debt financing and the cost of that debt, it does impact um, private equity's ability to pay. And Josh, one of the great things about having you on at this kind of inflection point, not just in the M&A market, but in the interest rate cycle, is that your, your industrial sector covers such a broad spread of industries and really in the global economy. And I want to just ask you, do you feel that your sectors are being uniformly affected and do you see a general consensus among you know, corporate decision makers and private equity investors about where we are in the cycle and their degree of confidence in not just deal making, but in the economy more generally? 
it's pretty uniform. I'd say all subverticals and industrials are hanging in there. Frankly, probably more resilient in 99.9% of the people, just given the macro outlook at the beginning of the year, would have thought. You know, once you get into auto and EV and all the various moving pieces there, that's kind of its own ecosystem. So I'll put that to the side. But whether it's, you know, building products and construction, chemicals, packaging, aerospace and defense, transportation and logistics, and so on, pretty much all of them were hanging in there. You know, if you would look at the the number of names that were problematic or had heavy headwinds, you know, barring I'd say really exuberant, um, you know, bullish years. It's pretty middle of the fairway. You know, you have a bunch of people outperforming, you know, some underperforming, some kind of, you know, within the bandwidth of normal performance. So I think that's all good. That's all healthy. I think the macro and the performance is good. Balance sheets are good. The problem with industrials, because industrials does generally have healthy performance and balance sheets, is mathematical. It is just the cost of financing. And when the cost of financing a deal, you know, it's a pure hypothetical, um, you know, for years was five to 6%. And now it's eight to 10% or greater. It's it just affects things. But I will say what to me, the biggest difference is how the companies in the industrial sector have hung in there, and how kind of the threat of a macro apocalypse is being removed. So now it's just threading the needle on valuation. And that's encouraging. And Josh, as you're watching them perform, you know, through this time period, if we think about the the COVID time period, the last two or three years, I would say we've always talked about how so many of our clients have been inwardly focused, and I think they're probably as clean as we've seen them in some time in terms of the strength of their business. And so it does feel like there's a, a pent up demand where they're ready to transact. Are you seeing more activity in terms of? where your clients are looking at transactions in terms of additions, or have they thought about when the time is right, I have an asset that I know I need to sell as I'm shaping my portfolio? Well, Vito, I, I, th- I, think, I think it's both. Um, you know, We just had our annual industrials conference last week, so we met with a broad swath of companies, you know, C-suite. All of them say they're open for business on M&A. I can't even tell you definitively that you know, it's more you know, bolt on has to be middle of the fairway. I'd say it probably tilts that way, but I don't think people are, um, you know, drawing particularly bright lines there. I think they're willing to be opportunistic, you know, and bet on their business for the long term. I think it just comes down to, you know, the cost of that financing and availability, especially as you go down to single B, uh, you know, it's reasonably healthy for double B. It's more expensive than it used to be. And I grade, obviously, the market's always open. And a lot of the I-grade guys, given their size, have a bunch of cash. So that's on the buy side for corporates. They all say they're open for business, looking um, you know, to buy attractive assets. In terms of divestitures, um, there have been some notable divestitures, which I think is a really bullish sign, because if you had a truly you know, a closed M&A envir- environment, uh, people would just be holding back and say, you know what, I'll sell when the, the sun's shining a little brighter next year. You know, we just helped a private equity firm uh, buy an asset, Delrin, uh, from DuPont. You know, pure corporate divestiture to thread the needle. Um, DuPont had to keep some of the equity. There's some seller paper involved, so people being creative. Another notable deal in aerospace and defense, BAE Systems, major divestiture out of ball. So things are happening. And to me, that's encouraging because, as I said, like we've all been through environments where it was just shut and corporates 
that had businesses they were willing, dying to sell, being pressured to sell, just said, there's just no, we can't do it. And all of us that read the paper, there are other rumored deals, um, including an industrial's coming of size. And look, I think you mentioned the Ball Aerospace transaction where BAE was the winner of that auction. I would say that's an asset that has been coveted for some time over the years, well before COVID. And certainly it's something that everyone tracked and talked about. And at the right time when it became available, as we always talk about, good premium assets will have a market. And that one certainly did. Well, it's also true that we had 15 years of 0% interest rates, plus or minus. But in the era before that, uh, we had a, a very s- strong and healthy M&A market in industrials. And that even though, as you say, Josh, the cost of capital needs to reset and, and people need to rethink their their plans based on that, you can still have a, a very steady and very constructive set of conditions for the right types of transactions. Right. And I guess, Vito, as a continuation to your question, um, you know, center on corporates, definitely appetite to buy. They are launching or have announced successful transactions selling assets. Corporates that have cash, revolver capacity, CP access, they're in a very good position because obviously you can impute a higher cost to their cash, you know, throw it at a, at a pick your duration treasury rate. But the truth is if that cash is lying around and many of them have billions, uh, that's a big advantage versus, um, you know, a single B issuer that has to issue a 10% or private equity whose cost of debt will be double digits. You know, good example, a very good transaction for RBC where um, we were the sole advisor to Sanko Ban. Um, buying building products of Canada over a billion dollar um, deal in the roofing space, Sanko Ban was able to use cash on hand to do it, and uh, it basically convinced the seller that private equity couldn't be um, competitive. And frankly, neither could even other corporates that didn't have that kind of cash lying around. So it's a really good environment for you know large corporates um, with that kind of balance sheet capacity. It highlights in this this environment right now that a lot of our corporate clients who've done well by their balance sheet can consider transformative M&A or opportunistic M&A when it comes up at the right time. And certainly that's going to be something that we see going through the remainder of this year and the early next year, because I think there's a lot of parties that are prepared based on having the levered and having the capacity as you talked about. Maybe taking a step back as we talk to our clients about the different alternatives that they have. I mean, we always go through the analysis of you know, you're generating a fair amount of cash. How do you use that cash? Do you look at M&A? Do you look at delivering? Do you look at stock buybacks, things of that nature, if you want to continue the status quo? Are you seeing the management teams and the boards aligned in terms of the growth initiatives that they're pursuing? Do they feel comfortable with their businesses? One of the things I'm seeing a lot of is in this environment, there's a lot of talk of specific acquisitions to bolster growth because they're concerned about hitting the targets that they've put out there. So where are your clients in that spectrum? Are are they buying businesses to try to bolster growth? It's not even sub-vertical specific within industrials. It's very company specific, but you know, typically the three highlighted capital allocation areas are organic, buybacks and accretive M&A. There have been significant buybacks towards the end of year, the beginning of year when stock prices were much lower. So that's been done. 
organic initiatives have been pushed. So it stands to reason that as the M&A market is coming back, and by that I mean, like I said, there's just a little more visibility. Uh, there's a little more, um, you know, optimism about the macro outlook. I wouldn't even say optimism. I'd say, you know, lack of doom and gloom. So I think eyes are turning to M&A. Um, you know, it takes two to tango. Sellers need to be willing to sell. And, you know, if they and their advisors are being more honest, in some cases, maybe they're expected, um, you know, prices have to come down. It's really mathematical that depending on the buyer, you know, especially if it's geared towards PE, if, you know, the cost of funding for the buyer is 10% plus versus 6%, then the multiple has to be lower. So there's this recalibration. I think some of that math goes out the window for corporates. If corporates, you know, deem it strategic um, and they have cash on hand and a cheaper cost of capital, they could stretch more. But I guess now I'm morphing more towards the private equity world. I've seen, you know, very delineated facets within deal making in industrials for private equity tied towards bridging this uh, seller buyer valuation gap. But I think corporates, again, coming from our conference last week, definitely want to ramp up to the extent that they've been playing more of the, you know, the, uh, the buyback and the organic growth uh, arrows from their quiver. I think they'd like to ramp up M&A. So I have one related question on corporates and, and the economy, Josh, which is, and, and again, I know it, it's, it's a very wide, heterogeneous group of companies in, in the industrial sector that spans everything from packaging companies and transportation logistics companies to chemical companies, building products, of course, aerospace, et cetera. But we've seen that the you know United Auto Workers are immersed in a, in a contentious uh, discussion with, uh, with the big three automakers. And we know that you know, there's wage pressure on, that comes from just the inflationary environment we've all experienced the last couple of years in the industrial sector. Are there, are there any general observations you have about about these types of pressures from uh, wage pressures on margin that might affect M and A? You know, either as you know, positively or negatively. And also, do you have a sense from most of your client base that? the types of supply chain issues that created uh, you know, challenges for many companies in industrials have begun to stabilize at this point. So yes, across the board, labor scale, which, which is really interesting because it's, uh, you know, as we all know from our uh, professional lives uh, going back decades, in a tough economic environment, people don't usually talk about labor scarcity. And that's kind of the new normal of this macro environment. We have low unemployment and high demand for workers, there's no doubt there are pressures across the board in industrials to find sufficient and train labor, probably more so than I've heard in my entire career. So that definitely is affecting performance. To be fair, if you look at gross margins and generally margins, though, they're making it work in the form of uh, you know price and mix and other efficiencies. But there's no doubt that labor's got, I mean, obviously with the UAW strike going on, that is, uh, you know, kind of the flagship case, uh, you know, out there. But pretty much every subsector of industrials, I spend a ton of time in construction. I hear over and over and over again. And it's from manufacturing line people to truck drivers through the chain in terms of getting the right trained people, sufficient trained people, you know, on board. Which, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a double-sided coin. It tells you that there's real demand. And they're not looking to cut people, they're looking to hire people. The flip side is, you know, obviously those costs 
have to be accounted for. And then on the supply chain, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt. This, this is very, very sub-segment um, specific on supply chain and onshoring. But there's no doubt people are planning, you know, not for a year or two, but for, you know, what could be decades in terms of the new geopolitical normal. And that means real costs associated with redesigning supply chains, onshoring facilities, onshoring the supply sources. And commensurate with that will be labor, because labor will be needed, um, you know, with onshoring here in the U.S. versus, in theory, places where there was cheaper labor or cheaper costs. So it does tie together, and industrials is very much, uh, you know, in the middle of all this. We always talk about the need for confidence in executing on transactions, and it does feel like, and I think your universe of clients is a great example, it does feel like CEOs are much more comfortable that they can manage through disruption, whether it be a geopolitical event, supply chain issues, uh, obviously labor's an issue, but it feels like they've gotten their arms around their businesses. And we're, we've seen a steady uptick in CEO confidence. Are you seeing that level of confidence is, is at a sufficient level now for them to transact, or is it you know, still case by case like we're seeing out there? I think there is higher confidence. I think you know, going back to um, the second, pa- uh, second half of last year, uh, entering into Q4, the lack of visibility across the board was, uh, was pretty unprecedented. People really didn't know what to make of 2023. And uh, by the way, they were right. You know, all you have to do is turn on uh, any, <laughs> uh, I'll be careful here and not name names, but pretty much uh, any experts on uh, the markets in terms of outlook for 23. And 24, uh, 23 has been a very pleasant surprise. So I think the confidence comes from the fact that like this scenario heading into the unknown of the, the first interest rate height with all this geopolitical noise going on, like, and how bad this could be, that's been removed. So I think it's it's not necessarily confidence that they know that there's going to be a stump function change up next year, but it's almost like a, a sigh of relief that, wow, you know, we kind of weathered that and here we are, you know, we've got, uh, you know, 5% short-term interest rates and you know what, we're okay. So I think there is confidence that, wow, you know, it wasn't the apocalypse, we're out there, things are a little more expensive, we are dealing with, you know, with, you know, labor and other issues, but we've got this. So, and that comes back, Vito, I think to your point before, in that kind of environment, when you don't really know on organic and baseline demand facts, you know, you're not afraid that it's going to fall through the floor, but, you know, kind of where they're in an environment where it could be flattish, I think you do turn to M&A for growth. So I think that is going through through people's minds. You know what? My balance sheet's good. The world's, you know, the world's going to keep on spinning around, you know, in terms of growth to really kind of like charge growth, I think I should turn to M&A. So I, th- I think that sentiment is right. This is probably the most variability I have seen in my over three decades of doing this, where we had such a peak in 21 in terms of activity and in terms of businesses flourishing. Then you've had such a drop, and now it's steadily coming back. I mean, our anticipation is that 24 is going to be a very strong year from a business climate perspective, but also from a transaction perspective. Are you feeling that with the client base as well? Is it across the board, like you were saying, or you know, is it more dominant than in some specific sectors? No, that's my gut. I think that this um, fear of the macro apocalypse has been removed. You know, there's kind of been um, this acclimation to this interest rate environment. There's been almost two years of relative dormancy, 
And I think that there is a tremendous backlog of pent up demand. So I agree with your sentiment. Um, you know, from my career, you know, probably even the toughest periods, you look at the early 2000s, you know, post the dot com boom, uh, you know, boom bust, and then the GFC, you really haven't seen these markets closed for more than a couple of years. And guess what? When we get into Q1 of 24, it will have been a couple of years. And just in talking to people, there's so much appetite out there. We haven't really focused on private equity. There's been significant, you know, fundraises. We have a lot of fresh capital out there. These are very creative deal makers that are incentivized, um, you know, to get deals done. And that combined, you know, with corporates who are looking for growth, it, it is a good setup. I mean, we'll see. The, the one damper is still rates and inflation are stubbornly high. But especially with a little bit of cooperation there, could be very interesting next year. Josh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Larry and I enjoyed the conversation. And, you know, we always uh, enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was a pleasure being here. Look forward to the next one. You've been listening to Strategic Alternatives the RBC M&A podcast. Join us for more analysis about what's moving the M&A markets in our next episode. If you'd like more information on the topics discussed today, please contact us directly or visit rbccm.com forward slash strategic alternatives. Today's podcast was recorded on September 18th, 2023. If you're enjoying strategic alternatives, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please drop us a review and or comment. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com slash disclosure.